0: My name is Jay Hotchkiss, and I'll be reading from uh, Hebrews 11, the full, the full chapter of Hebrews 11 and then a couple of verses into chapter 12. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the Pew Bible beginning on uh, page 1007. So it's a long chapter. You might want to follow along. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies." Put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or fainthearted. And that's the word of the Lord.
1: Okay, so we are continuing our series on on the book of Hebrews, and let me ask you, what is the book about? What is the book about? I'm just, I'm going to have you speak for a little bit, okay? What is the book of Hebrews about? So, I don't say it, but you say it, okay? Jesus is better, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that all of us, we know that by now, and we see it on the screen, I understand. But that it really becomes a reality for us. This is the lens through which we look at the world. Because the book of Hebrews is not, it's not just making a theoretical argument for Jesus. What it's doing is it's saying, since Jesus is better, or as our... As our posters here say, since we have this kind of high priestess, we have this kind of Jesus, it follows that we should hold fast our confession. We should persevere. We need to continue to follow Him. The point of the book isn't just for us to learn that He is better, but for us to apply it and actually live in light of that. And so, in the original context, these are the Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, who are considering maybe going back to Judaism. And he's saying, you can't do that because Jesus is better. You have to stay with Him. But whatever you're dealing with this morning, whatever the internal pressure of temptation perhaps or external pressure, peer pressure, anybody's pushing you away from Jesus, whatever it is, suffering, whatever it is, it's still the same dynamic. Jesus is better. Hold on to Him. Stick with Him and continue to follow Him. So that's, that's the book. And then we just work it out in different passages in different uh, particular situation. so let 's look at our chapter i 'm going to walk through it very quickly to give us the flow of the argument here, and then uh, we will focus on particular things in it. as you know, as you listen to the chapter, and many of you are very familiar with it, this is a very rich passage, and I will not be able to do to do the passage It's justice and cover all of it and plus also my wife said, don't say everything you want to say i 'm in children 's church today so we have to be done at a reasonable hour here, but let's, let's walk through the passage together before we make a few points uh, from it. Uh, so the context is in chapter 10, if you remember Pastor Joshua's sermon last week, there's a warning against falling away, and there's another exhortation to persevere, and then it ends, the chapter 10, it ends on the call to faith, and this, this is the kind of faith that will allow us to persevere. Chapter 11 then is largely illustrating this kind of faith. So it is about faith, but the point is that this faith will help you persevere. So it's not just telling you what faith faith is like, it's telling you that through this kind of faith you will remain a follower of Jesus, you will continue to follow him whatever the circumstances of your life may be. And so we're given many examples of people who lived by this kind of saving persevering faith. Now, we have a long passage, so let me give you big pieces here. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11, this is largely a definition of faith. 4 through 7, that's where we start getting examples of particular people from the Old Testament. 4 through 7 are examples of people from before the flood. So Abel, Enoch, and Noah, they're all commended by God for their faith and the world is condemned for not believing Noah and his preaching of God's word to them. In verses 8 through 22, a larger section here, we have examples of faith from the life the lives of Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Joseph, so the patriarchs, that that family through which God promised the blessing to the world, through which the Messiah was promised to come. Now all these promises largely are connected to the land The patriarchs died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. We'll talk about that. But that future hope shaped their present lives. Verses 23 through 31, here's the next period in Israel's history, the time of the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan. So, Moses leads people out of the slavery in Egypt, and then he leads them into Canaan, the land of promise, where Joshua guides the people, leads them into possessing the land. And so, Jericho is mentioned, Rahab is mentioned here. All of them acted in faith based on God's promises to them. Verses 32 through 38. Now, this is where I feel that the author, as he's writing, he's realizing I don't have that much papyrus left here. So let me cram as much as I can in these, these few lines. And so he just lists a bunch of people, and then he lists a bunch of situations that are alluding to all sorts of stories in the Old Testament to illustrate further for us what this life of persevering faith is like. So some are, have accomplished great things like putting armies to flight and quenching fire and all that kind of stuff. But by the same faith, others were persecuted and they suffered and actually died painful deaths without seeing that deliverance in their earthly lives. So in the author's point of view, both groups of people exhibited persevering faith, whether in accomplishments or in suffering. At the end of the chapter, 39 through 40, there's a connection that's made between the Old Testament and the New Testament believers. Old Testament believers were looking forward to something better that has now become a reality in Christ. Even though it's still pointing to the future restoration and the final salvation, we have what they didn't have. And so they could not have been perfected without us because they don't have what we have. And so now he's putting it together and he's saying, they persevered without having what you have in the new covenant. You should definitely persevere with what you have now in Christ. And then finally, the last passage, and by the way, this is part of the same logical piece here. Um, We took it together even though it's a longer passage because it all belongs together. It's the same argument. Verses 1 through 3 in chapter 12. Therefore, so everything I just told you, right? All these examples from the Old Testament. Therefore, because you have all these examples of faithful believers, a great cloud of witnesses as he calls them, those who have gone before us, Now let us persevere in our faith. There's an athletic metaphor of a race. Life is like a race. We are to finish the race well. We need to get rid of any distractions or obstacles or weights that are keeping us from running well, and we need to run with endurance. But where does this endurance come from? It comes from looking to Jesus. He gave us all these examples from the Old Testament, but that's not enough. And so He's going to leave us with the supreme example of faithfulness and persevering faith, and that is Jesus himself, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If we consider him, if we consider Jesus, if we keep our eyes fixed on him, if we focus on him, if we make him the center of our faith, we will not grow tired or discouraged, but we will finish the race well. That's our passage. This is what I'd like to do with it. I have three questions I'd like to ask and hopefully answer. Number one, what is faith, as it's defined in this passage, first few verses of the 11th chapter? Second question, what does this faith look like in real life? That's most of chapter 11. And then finally, how do we get this kind of faith? What is it? What does it look like, and how do we get it? The last point is in chapter 12. Okay, what is faith? I remember I was in a philosophy class in college in Ukraine, and uh, the question was posed, what is faith? And I remember quoting these verses <laughs> without any understanding of what the verses meant. I was such a new believer, I read it, I knew the definition of faith was in Hebrews 11, but I didn't really know what it meant, so I just kind of blurted it out. Now, it took me a while to figure out what it means, and I'm hoping that that we together can really understand what this really beautiful definition really means. Now, this is what it says, and this is verse 1 of chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It sounds beautiful, but what does it actually mean? There are two parts to it. It's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. They're complementing each other, but they're, they're distinct. First, faith is the confidence that certain things will come true based on God's promises. Faith is believing that God will do what He said He is going to do. Faith is accepting that what we hope for on the basis of God's revelation to us will actually come true. Thus, living by faith is living in full confidence that God will do what He promised to us. That's the first part. It's just believing not just believing as in wishing that something will come true, but accepting that, resting in that, seeing that as substantive, as real in your life, that what God said He will actually do, what you're hoping for will actually happen. Now, here's the second part. Faith is the conviction that the unseen is real. That the unseen is real. It's the view of reality that includes the spiritual realm. A church father put these two aspects together in this way. Through faith, we see what is unseen, and it acts as an eye for discernment of what is hoped for. Through faith, we see what, what is unseen, and faith acts as an eye for discernment of what is hoped for. Now, here's what he's saying. Faith is an instrument of vision. It enables us to see what is normally unseen, and to discern what we should hope for in connection to what is unseen. So faith is a, is a device. It's, you can look at, you look at it as a means, as, a, as an apparatus of sorts that enables us to discern and engage with reality. So faith is really a view of reality. It's how you see the world. It's how you see what's around you. Christians hold that faith, the Christian faith, is actually the right view of reality. It is seeing the world the way it really is. Now, let's take an example in our, in our passage, verse 3. He talks about creation. He says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, and so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So how does our faith portray the world based on this understanding of creation? How do we see reality around us? Well, there's God. Faith affirms that there's God, that He speaks, that His words have tremendous power, and in fact that He can create visible things out of invisible things like His words. So He can speak and things appear. And what we see is actually caused by invisible processes in this world. Our faith tells us that. So faith becomes a lens through which you see the world. By faith, you accept that visible things have their cause in invisible realities, or in other words, we can say that the material things of this world were brought forth, were brought about by invisible spiritual realities. The Word of the invisible God created all that we see. It's not to say that the material, what we see, is not important or that it's not real. Christians fully affirm that what we see is real. But we affirm that it's not ultimate. The things that we see, things that we can can understand with our senses, that's not faith. We can see and touch and taste. When we have that experience of reality, we're saying that's not all there is. There is stuff behind that. There are invisible things that we can only discern by faith based on what God tells us is real. In other words, this is what's happening. This is what Hebrews is saying, is that for a Christian, we look at the world very differently. We say it's not only what I see, but it's what I am told God is doing, and God is invisible. So I believe Him, that's faith. I trust Him, that's faith, but I accept God's view of reality. What faith does is it tells us to not trust ourselves completely, but to trust someone who is much more objective in His view of reality. And so we're basically accepting God's worldview by faith. So, by faith we understand, as this passage tells us, by faith we can discern, by faith we can understand what reality actually is. Now, let me give you an example of how we cannot escape dealing with the spiritual, invisible reality of this existence. I grew up in then still Soviet Ukraine. I was still brought up in the educational system that officially and ardently affirmed that there's only matter in existence. There's nothing else. It's just matter. I was brought up in the scientific atheism. That was the official term. I remember my grandpa had an atheist Bible. And you say, what is in that Bible exactly? What's left in the Bible? Well, stories are left. Stories of Moses and Jesus, but they're just explained through natural means. And so, there's no God in the atheist Bible, it's just stories what they thought were myths. And so, I was brought up in that culture that aggressively pursued eradication of any sort of supernatural worldview, and specifically the Christian religion. Now, I mean aggressively, like you could not believe and still get a higher education in Ukraine. You would not be accepted into a university if you affirmed that you believed in the Bible, because they thought it was crazy to do that. Now, why would you go study, because you're not that smart, because you already believe that stuff. That's the argument. Now, that's where I was brought up. Now, let me, let me tell you that in that culture that denied the supernatural, that denied the spiritual, guess what prospered in our culture? Love and the arts and poetry and music. Just because... Your culture told you there's no such thing as a spiritual reality. It didn't stop people from affirming that there is love and honor and courage. Those are spiritual realities. You can't touch them. They're invisible. Yet people believed in them. People wrote poetry that moved people's hearts, and it's an invisible reality. Why? You can't escape the spiritual Because we are made to be spiritual beings and we're made to live in the world in the reality constructed by God that includes the spiritual. And so try as we may to say there's only matter in this world, there's only the material in this world. We cannot escape being spiritual. You just can't do it. That's not how we're made. So faith explains to us how it actually works. Faith gives us the categories of how this world works was constructed to function properly. And it includes the spiritual. And in fact, it puts the spiritual over the material because things that are visible were made by God's words, which are invisible. And so it puts the spiritual on the level of a superior reality to the material. So by faith, and this is why in, in the Christian church, We don't have lists of favorite colors or favorite shapes. Those are visible realities. We have lists of virtues and gifts of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Those are invisible realities. Why? Because those things are more important than things that we see. By faith, we do that. By faith, we understand reality to be in this way. Now, if that's what faith is, it's this view of the world that includes the supernatural, it includes the spiritual, and specifically includes God who speaks things into existence and explains things to us, we base in our view of reality on His view of reality by faith, then what does it look like in actual life? Now, let's look at four pretty quickly because of the length of the passage on four uh, descriptions of this life of faith. If we were to live in accordance with that reality, what would our life look like? Well, number one, and this is in verses 4 through 7, we're staying pretty close to the text, 4 through 7, number one, it's a life that's pleasing to God. If you live by faith, you live a life that is pleasing to God. All over this chapter, but specifically in verses 4 through 7, we are told that people who lived by faith were commended by God for their faith. That means that God approved of them. God was pleased by their faith. In other words, they lived in the right relationship with God. Notice verse 6. Some of you have it memorized, maybe. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. It's impossible to please God without faith. Without what kind of faith? The faith of the previous verses. Without the right view of reality. Because if we are to please Him, we must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him, that He can welcome us into a relationship with Him, that He would respond to us if we go to Him. We believe that He exists and that He responds to us as we go to Him. A relationship with God by faith is a real possibility. Now, this is basic faith. It's just an understanding of how things work in creation, that there is God, that He desires a relationship with us, that if we go to Him, He will want that relationship with us. That's basic faith. The gospel fills this basic faith with the necessary details. The relationship with the real God who exists is possible through His Son. So basic faith, and now it's full faith of the gospel. And this is where the author of Hebrews wants to move the people. He wants to say, you have this basic faith, live it out, and now it's going to blossom into this full gospel faith. Relationship with the real God, is possible through His Son. Why? Because His Son came into this upside-down world. By upside-down, I mean that we put the material over the spiritual. He came into this world, and He lived a life of faith. He lived the right life that pleased God. Jesus had the perfect faith in this world. He died for our sins to reconcile us to God. He came so that as we seek God, as we draw near to Him and believe that He exists and believe that He rewards us, that God would actually be able to do that because Jesus provided for that. He opened that opportunity for us. He rose from the dead to welcome us into a real relationship with God. None of these things work unless we have faith that God exists, that He rewards those who seek Him, and that He provided a way for us to have a relationship with Him through Christ. Now, this is why two weeks ago when Pastor Brian Bish preached on justification of faith, it's such an important doctrine. We have to listen. Even if you know this, we have to listen again and again to that. We are justified by faith. We please God by faith. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith. We're made at peace, we're made reconciled, we're brought into a relationship with God, because by faith we have accepted the way this world really is, that the invisible God is working in our lives to bring us into relationship with Him through Christ. I have a friend who, who is, he would say he's a Christian agnostic, that's his term. By that he means he doesn't really believe that God exists, or he, at least he's not sure. But he lives his life according to Christian principles. And he would say and, and told me that, I don't know if God exists, but if I die and it turns out that God is real, he would be happy with the way I've lived my life. And of course, I would be okay with him. I mean, it's an interesting way to look at life. It's not biblical. The Bible says you can't please God without Faith. You can live a life that you think fits in God's principles, but if you don't believe He exists, if you don't believe He rewards those who seek Him, how can we hope to be okay with Him? It's as absurd as saying, I'm a really good husband. I mean, I'm not entirely sure my wife exists, and I can't prove that I have a relationship with her or that she responds to me in any way, but I'm a great husband. Do you see how it's, it's absurd, right? And yet so many of us say the same exact thing about God. We're saying, I don't think He exists. I don't think He could have a relationship with God. But I certainly live the way that, that would please Him. How? How can that be possible without a relationship with Him, without believing that He is real, that the world is the way He describes the world to be? How can we claim a life that's pleasing to Him unless we have faith Romans 14.23 says that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Even your righteous acts, even my good deeds are sinful in God's eyes unless they proceed from faith, faith in Him and what He's done for us in Jesus. Second, so the first description of a life of faith is it's a life that's pleasing to God. Secondly, it's a a forward-looking life. This is based on verses 8 through 22. It's a forward-looking life. Now, as you read this passage, and we Christians tend to easily get triumphalistic, you know, just say, look, they had faith. Everything worked out for them. And you look at this whole chapter, and specifically in verses 8 through 22, and you see that all those great people of faith, all those patriarchs, didn't receive what they were hoping for. They had faith. They were assured that based on God's promises, God will do what He had told them, and yet they didn't actually experience it, and they died in faith. Verse 13, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, they experienced partial fulfillment of God's promises for sure. Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah. That promise came true. Uh, They were in Canaan, though they didn't possess it, um, but they didn't see their offspring being as numerous as the stars. They didn't possess the land and all of the land. That didn't happen. Our author goes further than that, and he says not only they didn't see those fulfillments completely… They were actually hoping for something much better. So if Abraham got all of Canaan, if he saw millions of his offspring living on the earth, we would still say that they died in faith, not having received what God promised. Because Abraham, it tells us, was looking for a heavenly city. He wouldn't have been happy with an earthly city. He was looking for a heavenly city that has foundations that was established and built and designed by God Himself. That's a different kind of city. That's not a city in Canaan. It's a city of a different quality. They desired a better country, a heavenly country, and so they considered themselves to be strangers and exiles, or let me put it in modern terms immigrants and refugees as they walked on earth. Our faith is forward-looking. We're always looking for the time when God will fulfill His promises. We are exiles and strangers here. We don't belong here. This is not our true home. We live in faith looking forward to our true home and to the eternal city that God will give us eventually. Now, this is what we typically describe with the word heaven looking for heaven. Our faith is forward-looking towards heaven. Now, what is heaven? And I know this is such a big topic, and my wife is in children's church. But let me give you just a little bit on that, because it is so confusing. For most people, we think of heaven as this weird realm of clouds and people in white and harps and angels that's not actually wrong because those are images that come from Scripture. So, so those ideas have basis in Scripture, and yet they have been misinterpreted. They have been misapplied, those, those images. The heavenly country or the city with foundations is God's restored creation. This is what Revelation 21 describes as the new heaven and the new earth. It's actually going to be here. I mean, if you were hoping to get out of here, I'm going to disappoint you. The new heaven and the new earth is going to be here. God is going to renew this. He's going to give us a new earth and a new heaven in a sense that it's going to be finally operating and functioning according to His design. So it's going to be like this, but it's going to be totally not like this. Once we get there, we're going to say, it it reminds me of the place I used to wander around back in the day. But this is so much better. And now I can see how that place was supposed to really function. So when we talk about heaven, this is not an escape from this. This is a, a drastic improvement of this. And so the new heaven and the new earth is a renewed, restored, remade set right creation so what we now know by faith which is that the spiritual is above the material that the invisible things cause visible things that god exists that he rewards people we will then in heaven know by experience did you know that in glory you won't need faith it'll be utterly unnecessary You won't be commended for your faith then because you will have direct experience of God's creation and God himself in the way that you're supposed to experience it. So it'll be exactly matching your experience. Now our faith is envisioning the way it's supposed to be. And so we're longing for the day when this creation will be remade and will be set right and will actually function in the way God has designed us to function. The spiritual will control the material. God's words will be known and trusted. He will rule without any opposition. His glory will not be obscured by our sin. What we now pursue by faith will later be known to us by direct experience. That's really what the Bible means by heaven. And I think it's better than most of us confusingly imagined it to be. Our life of faith now is a life of looking forward to that restored creation, just like Abraham. Not all the promises were going to be fulfilled in his lifetime. He knew there's going to be another city, a better city, a heavenly country that will function according to the reality which his faith affirmed even then. So we live in hope. But there's an objection to this argument. When you read the Puritans, sometimes they would, they would propose a statement and they would say, objection and then they would defend that. That's how I was thinking about this sermon. What's the objection? Well, if we are so heavenly-minded, how can we be of any use to this world? It's a real objection. If all I'm thinking about is this renewed creation, restored creation, I'm just forward-looking and future-focused, what can I do here while I'm here? Because I'm here for a while. So can I do any good here because I'm so focused on the future, and God's fulfillment of His promises then. We'll listen to C.S. Lewis, who responds to this objection. He says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Now, he's writing 60, 70 years ago. This is the, the money quote. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Now, why? Because when you aim at heaven, when you, you imagine based on faith, based on your understanding of reality through God's words, you imagine the restored creation, you are the only person who knows what the world is supposed to be like because you can see the restored creation. Now, you can take that and apply it to your life now. We can take the image, the vision of the restored creation, and we say, let's try to make this creation a little bit like that one that's still coming. This is why Christians get involved in all sorts of social causes, because they can imagine what it should be like. If you're not a Christian, how do you know? How do you know how to improve this world if you don't have a picture of a better world? So we, the exiles and strangers, the immigrants and refugees in this world, are actually the most effective changers of this present world. If you like the musical Hamilton, you might remember when Hamilton and Lafayette saying, immigrants, we get the job done. That's Christians. Because we're exiles, because we're refugees, because we're longing for that other country, the heavenly country... The city that is better than this one, we can actually make a difference here, which is why Chatham was involved in our community. This is why. We know this is not our true home. We know there's a better place that God has prepared for us. But because we know that, we're going to make this a little better. Number three, life of faith is a world defined. Life. It's a world defined life, verses 23 through 31. Here we have the stories of Moses rejecting the treasures of Egypt to lead God's people out of slavery, the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, Joshua's bizarre strategy of taking Jericho, and Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, hiding the spies. These are crazy stories. You read them in the Old Testament, you're like, this is so weird. And in the world's eyes, it absolutely sounds crazy. What did Moses do? He, he said, I'm not going to stay in the palace where I have the riches and the pleasures of an elite position in the court of the Pharaoh. No, I'm going to go and I'm going to take my people, the slave people, out of Egypt to some country that God maybe will, will give us. And then, right on the, on the night when they were supposed to get out... He said, okay, let's slaughter some lambs and let's just just put some blood on the door frames. What is that about? It's crazy. Because if we do that, God is going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt, but he's going to spare our children. Why did he do that? In faith, right? Only faith. And then you got Joshua marching around the city, blowing trumpets and seeing the city fall. Rahab not fearful of the guards of the, her own government, her own city's authorities saying, I'm going to hide these spies on an off chance that they're going to come back with an army, take the city, and then spare me and my family. That all sounds crazy according to the world. But, here's the but, what if, friends, what if we actually do belong to another world where these things are normal, what if we have another king? Not the king of Jericho, not the Pharaoh of Egypt, but we have another better king. What if the invisible is actually more important than the visible? Now, those are all assumptions of faith. Faith tells us that's reality, that's how you need to see the world around you. The invisible is more important than the visible. There's another king, God exists. And He tells us things, and if we obey His commands, things work because this is His world, that we belong to this other world, and if we can function under its principles. If that's true, if what faith tells us is true, all these things that these people did are absolutely normal and rational. Of course, if God tells you to do that, Of course, you would do it because God exists and God desires a relationship with me. Whatever He tells me is good and right and rational and makes perfect sense. They trusted God and followed His commands. They acted according to their view of reality. I was reading a little bit about the North Korean Christians. Because of the Olympics, there's coverage of North Korea, and and some of the stories are fascinating. How, How do you function as a Christian in North Korea? highly controlled environment, where everybody knows everything, information is, is only certain information is disseminated, there's, there's incredible government restrictions on your life. How do you function as a Christian? How do you worship? And so, some of the witnesses, some of the people who got out share these stories, and they say, sometimes your church is just you and your spouse. That's it. Nobody else knows you're a Christian. So you worship together. When your children become a little bit bigger and they can keep a secret, you tell them that we're Christians. Not until then. Sometimes church is two Christians sitting on the same park bench and not talking to each other, but knowing that they're Christians. Now, why would they risk doing these things? Why would people in this oppressive regime where if anybody finds out you have faith, that you believe in the invisible that you have the assurance of things hoped for, if that is true of you and somebody finds out, not only will they imprison or kill you, but they also imprison your family. Guilt by association. Why would you hold on to this faith? Why would you hold on to the Christian practices? There's only one reason. There's only one rational reason for that. You would do that if you actually believed that what your faith tells you is real, that it's real, that God really exists. That he will reward those who seek him, that he wants a relationship with you. And that is more important. Invisible though it is, it's more important than the visible things like weapons and prisons and death itself. This is the argument of Hebrews. If you know who Jesus is, if your faith tells you that this is the reality, that God is really this way and that He really exists and that He does these things and Jesus really came to die and rise for you. If that's true, your life will be different and you will take all sorts of risks, you will do all sorts of crazy things because that is actually more rational and normal than not doing those things. And finally, the fourth, is it's a life of astonishing victories and triumphant tragedies. Life of faith is a life of astonishing victories and triumphant tragedies. Tragedies, Verses 32 through the end of the chapter. He lists a bunch of examples of faith. But notice the shift in verse 35. And if you look at verse 35 with me, you should be able to see how it changes. Now, he lists all these accomplishments. And then verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection probably talking about the widow of Zarephath and Elijah and then Elisha and that wealthy woman. He's probably talking about these examples of people who actually prayed for their dead children and their dead children were brought to life. Amazing, amazing thing. But then the same verse, he says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. So some believers by faith received their dead children back to life here. And others died in pain awaiting another resurrection. And his point is that a life of faith includes both. It includes these great accomplishments like quenching the fire and shutting the mouths of, of lions and these great victories. But it also includes Christians dying in pain and not seeing the fulfillment of prophecies and not seeing the deliverance until the, other, the next world comes. Chrysostom says, "For the wonderful qualities of faith are two: it both accomplishes great things and suffers great things, treating suffering as it were nothing. Both things are true of our life of faith. God may use us to accomplish great things or He might enable us to suffer well. And if your understanding of faith does not include both, it's not a biblical understanding. We cannot only be triumphalistic and saying God will do anything I pray for, nor can we say God never answers and we're here to suffer. It's both, or it's either or in your life, but both are included in this realm of faith. John Knox famously prayed, the Scottish reformer famously prayed to God, give me Scotland or I die. that's would be my example of fervent prayer on Friday, on some Friday. That's fervent isn't it? Give me Scotland or I'll die. He's saying, there's no other way I'm going to stop praying. I either die and so I'll stop praying then, or you give me Scotland. And God gave him Scotland. He prayed and God gave him Scotland. I mean, God just gave it to him. The whole country was reformed and revived. So we see stories like that. But we also know stories of missionaries that pray for years, for decades, and no converts are seen. We know of missionaries that, that were murdered by the people that they came to serve. You see, but both are true. We hear stories of like Pastor Walker from Grace Bible Church who had cancer and we prayed for him, and he's doing great. He looks great. He, he says he's healthier than he was before he got cancer. He's trying to get his whole church to eat healthy and to exercise and to sleep well. It's, it's quite amazing. God delivered him. God healed him. Right? That's, that's a real story of, of, of a, something triumphant in someone's life. God answered his prayers and our prayers and his church's prayers. He did that. But then we also have the story of Terry Blackwell, who suffered greatly, one illness after another, and she died. She died to await a better resurrection. Now, both experiences are part of our life of faith. We see God deliver us from some, that's why we need to pray fervently. But we also need to accept that often God enables us to suffer well. Well, I have one last point to make, and we'll wrap it up, that has to do with the final section of our passage in verse, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 12. And that is the supreme example of Jesus. How do we get this faith? How do we live this kind of life? life that's pleasing to God, life that's world-defined, life that is full of these triumphant tragedies and, and great accomplishments, how do, how do we live like that? He tells us, let me read it to you, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, So far, he's just telling you what to do. But now he's telling you how to do it. Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. How do we run? We look to Jesus. If we want to run with endurance, if we want to finish the race, if we want to live this life of faith, we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. who, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God consider him fix your eyes on him look to him ponder him make him the center of your faith consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted look to jesus and you can actually live this kind of life of faith the saving persevering faith could be your experience because he is our pioneer You see, in Jesus, He he went through this experience. He lived the life we're supposed to live. This word founder means pioneer or pathfinder. Jesus is the one person who actually lived a perfect life of faith. He went before us to blaze the trail for us. He endured the cross. There's nothing greater that we are asked to endure. He despised the shame. So when people despise you when people are mocking you when they're unhappy with you because of your faith. Jesus had experienced the same thing. He despised that. He endured hostility and violence from sinners. Jesus experienced the worst of this upside-down world, and he persevered. He pleased his father with his faith. And as he suffered in pain, that, that great passage when, in, in Matthew, when, when he is dying... He's on the cross, and everybody's mocking him. It seems like everybody's just taking turns mocking him. That's shame, right? That's hostility from sinners. This is real experience of Christ. And somebody says, somebody says mockingly, he says, he trusts God. Right? Let God save him. He trusts him. Let God save him. But he actually did trust God. Those words were actually true. Though they were said in mockery, Jesus was actually trusting God. He was actually exercising faith. He was living his life and dying his death on the basis of God's promises and God's view of reality. And his faith pleased the Father. Jesus defied the world by giving his life for our sins. Imagine what the world, well, you don't have to imagine. You know what the world says about the cross. It's it's a tragedy. He had a great life ahead of him. He could have done so much more, right? The world sees it as a failure, but faith sees it as a triumphant tragedy. Is it a tragedy? Yes, the Son of God died. But it's a triumph. We consider the cross one of the greatest triumphs of God by faith. The cross is the ultimate triumphant tragedy. Jesus is our pioneer. He's our perfecter. He lived that life. He lived it in a forward-looking way. Because he considered the joy set before him worth enduring the cross. And Jesus actually received all the rewards that were promised to him. This is really important to see that Jesus finished the race. He endured, he persevered, and he is now awarded the crown. Our text tells us he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He finished the race. And now his faith is unnecessary. He is, by direct experience, has all the rewards that God promised to him. He's enthroned at the right hand of God. He's now exalted, having been humiliated before. Jesus shows us that God's promises are worth building your life on. When you are discouraged and you think, is it worth running this race? Is God going to do what he promised to do for me? Look at Jesus. Consider him. He suffered greatly, and yet he was exalted and is sitting at the right hand of God. Not only did he finish the race, but there's a promise that we will finish this race in him. Scripture most commonly refers to Christians as those who are in Christ. If we are in Christ, and he finished the race, and he triumphed, and he endured, and he has received his reward, so will we. We too will be exalted and will rule with him Forever, He's our pioneer. He is our perfecter. He's our pattern. A disciple is not above his teacher. Luke 6, 40. We should not expect our life to be any different from Christ's life. It's the cross, then the resurrection we suffer to, to experience his deliverance. And fourthly, he is our power. He's our power. Our faith is is powered by our connection to and our vision of Jesus. We cannot persevere unless we have a real connection with Jesus. This is how we know what the reality is like because God actually came into this world to show us what He's glorious, to show us what He is like. And if we look to Him, we will be able to persevere and we won't get tired. You won't get discouraged as long as you fix your eyes on Jesus. When you take your eyes off of Jesus, we struggle. We're going to come to the Lord's table. This is an opportunity for us to look to him, to consider him, to fix our eyes on him.